Later this week in Lakeland, Florida, is our annual conference gathering of United Methodist clergy and lay delegates from across the state. We will gather to pray, worship, and plan for the future of Methodism in Florida. I appreciate your prayers for us. As part of annual conference, we will celebrate clergy who are observing milestone anniversaries in their ministry. And I will be among those persons celebrating 25 years this month since I became a minister. To be honest, the number kind of snuck up on me. Many days it feels just like yesterday that I was ordained. At the same time, these last two years have felt like the longest decade of my life. On this Pentecost Sunday, when we celebrate the birth of the church, I've spent time thinking about the church, this institution, this denomination, that I've now devoted exactly half my life in service to. To graduate from seminary back in 1997, I was required to write a master's thesis that answered this question, what do I believe is the nature and mission of the church? Fair question for anyone wanting to become a minister, right? Now, when I wrote that thesis, I was just three years removed from college with intentions at the time of becoming a doctor. I graduated with a pre-med biology degree, but God had other plans for me. Sometimes God spoke through burning bushes to people, sometimes through still small voices. In my case, God spoke through 11 rejection letters from 11 medical schools. So I still had that biology degree fresh in my mind when three years later, I sat down to write that master's thesis on the nature and mission of the church. So I couldn't help but use a science reference to describe the church, a reference from cell biology to be exact. I wrote that the church is organic and living, a lot like a cell body, a single unit made up of many vital parts, none of which are more or less important than the others. Like people in the church, some are like the mitochondria, the powerhouses of the church. Some are like the nucleus, who preserve and transmit its identity forward. Some are like endoplasmic reticulum, for no other reason than it's fun to say to someone, you remind me of an endoplasmic reticulum. When I look back on that essay now, I am amazed at how desperate I was to justify my four years spent earning a biology degree. Well, the thesis is largely forgettable, I think, but there is one part that still sticks with me to this day, especially on this Pentecost Sunday, in this week when I mark my 25th anniversary of ministry. It's the part where I talk about the walls of the cell, the walls of organized religion. On the one hand, if our cells did not have walls, we wouldn't be alive. Without them, our cytoplasm and organelles would gush out. We would be prone to foreign contaminants. We would have no defined organs. Cell walls give definition. They're important. And to be sure, that's also helpful for organized religion. We have parameters that define who we are and who we're not. We have doctrine and creeds, tradition and institutional memory, 
We have an organizational structure and a book of discipline. It's those kinds of walls that define our identity, ward off bad and harmful theology, and they allow us to survive. But there's more. There has to be more, because the cell biology metaphor doesn't end there. It turns out that the walls of our cells are not fixed or rigid. They flex and they grow and they expand. And they're also semi-permeable. They can let new molecules in along with nutrients to let the cell grow bigger. All of this happens because of unique bodies called carrier proteins that actively transport materials through the walls of the cell. You know, often when we think about organized religion, it's tempting to look at it based on its defining walls. This is who we are, this is who we're not, and this is what we have to keep out. This is our mission, our vision, our core values. This is the way we do things, the way we've always done things. And to, to change who we are just to accommodate the outside would be too risky. That's why we have these walls. And the part that we sometimes forget is the walls of the church are meant to flex and bend, to be semi-permeable, to allow the possibility of new growth and new expansion, as painful as that might be. And that's where the story of Pentecost comes in, along with the entire history of the church. Because from the very beginning, God intended the church to exist not for its own self-preservation, but for its expansion and inclusion to expand its walls wider and wider into a more inclusive vision of the love of God. In the story of Pentecost, in Acts 2, we experience the wind and the flame and the speaking in tongues, all the stuff we often remember. The part we often skip over is the reading of the ethnicities and regions. I mean, that's the part that's always fun to hear a scripture reader try to pronounce. In verse 7, someone in the crowd asked the question, Hey, wait a minute. Isn't everyone here a local? A Galilean? I mean, they thought the walls of the church were only so big and that the people present were all insiders. But they soon discovered that from the moment the church was born, God was already flexing and bending and expanding the walls of the church. It's all in verses 8 to 10 filled with all of those hard-to-pronounce names of ethnicities and nations. And as I read these names for you again, picture in your mind a map of the first century Middle Eastern Roman world, because we would discover that Luke is drawing a circle with these names, a big, wide, ever-expanding circle of the reach of God. It would start out in the east, in modern-day Iraq and Iran, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and the residents of Mesopotamia. It would travel northwest toward Palestine and modern-day Syria and Turkey, Judea and Cappadocia. It would move through Greece, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia. It would cross south across the Mediterranean into North Africa, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and it would bring it all back to the center of the circle, the center of the empire, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. Luke is literally and figuratively expanding the walls of the kingdom of God to include more people 
than have ever been included before. From the very beginning, the walls of the Christian church have never been fixed or static or immovable. They have been flexible, semi-permeable, expansive, and inclusive. And the rest of the book of Acts is about the expansion of its walls to include new people who were once excluded. In Acts 10, Peter received a vision from God that would allow people to become Christians even if they did not observe Jewish customs and rituals. The walls of the church were semi-permeable. In Acts 15, in the high point of organizational tension in the early church, Christians decided to formally allow non-Jews to follow Jesus, a watershed moment in the history of the church and is the reason you and I are Christians today. The the walls of the church were semi-permeable. In Galatians, Paul wrote his clearest and boldest statement about the walls of the church. Quote, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. There is no room in the church for gender inequality or racism in the church. Its walls are semi-permeable. And God is calling us to expand the walls to even greater inclusion today to include those who have otherwise felt excluded or even harmed by the church, whether it be because of their socioeconomic status or their sexual orientation or gender identity or their physical ability or their race or age or gender, all people, all people are loved by God and we are called to love all. Years ago, the great Orthodox theologian and author Yaroslav Pelikan offered a lecture with this provocative title, Does the Church Have to Change in Order to Remain the Same? In that lecture, he recounted many of the times when the church has had to change in order to be the same body of love and grace that God has called it to be. It changed when it tore down the divisions between Jews and Gentiles. It changed its views on science, rejecting a flat earth and a geocentric universe. The church has changed its views on racial inferiority and slavery. Our own denomination reunited in 1939 after it split over slavery during the Civil War. And for more than 50 years, the denomination has had female clergy serving its churches, including the two amazing clergy women we have on staff here. The church, over time, indeed, has had to change in order to stay the same to have the same broad, inclusive, and ever-expanding vision of God's love that was evidenced on that first Pentecost Sunday, to reach out to include those who were formally excluded. And you and I are carrier proteins in that work. We are transporter proteins in the work of making sure that the walls of organized religion never become so fixed or rigid that they prevent the possibility of new people experiencing the love of God in their lives. We have a lot of work to do. Far too many people within our community have been harmed and excluded by religious experiences in the past. I've been thinking quite a lot about LGBTQ people in our denomination quite a bit over these last few months. But for anyone and everyone who has ever felt unloved and unlovable and unable 
to be part of a community of love and grace, on this Pentecost day, we are called to say our mission here at Hyde Park United Methodist Church is to make God's love real, teaching people to follow Jesus by loving God and loving all. Let's pray. God of grace and glory, you created the church to be an expression of your son, Jesus Christ, to be the hands and feet, the body of your grace. Forgive us for the inflexibility of our walls. Call us to a greater love. Call to mind those who feel harmed and excluded that we might be active transporters, welcoming and embracing all your people. In Jesus' name, amen.